Everyone faces challenges every single day. Some are chosen and bring us joy. Some are given to us and bring struggle or pain. Whether the diagnosis of an illness, the news of a friend's death, the loss of a job, or a bike accident, we may be asked to step up to face issues that demand courage and perseverance. Hurt is just one of the many aspects of full lives. Each week on this show, ACT, Taking Hurt to Hope, Dr. Joanne Dahl helps us understand how we can use acceptance and commitment therapy to learn to accept what we cannot change and move forward into a valued life. Now, here's your host, Dr. Joanne Dahl. Welcome to ACT, Taking Hurt to Hope. Today we're going to continue our series of ACT applications on different health issues. And now we've come to the stomach. Irritable bowel syndrome, also called IBS, is a common functional disorder of the stomach. When we say functional disorder, this means that despite that the stomach is very upset and it may hurt and there are a lot of symptoms, uh, no actual uh, neurological or muscular, we say structural problems, can be found. So in IBS, the function of the stomach is upset in, in different kinds of symptoms, but the stomach may look very normal even under a microscope. Now, IBS causes various symptoms that we're going to take up today, and about 20% of us will develop IBS at some stage in our lives. IBS can affect anyone at any age, but it's common that it first develops in young adults and teenagers. And IBS is also about twice as common in women as in men. Today I have a guest for you that um, is going to talk about this. He is an expert and has done many studies uh, at the Karolinska Institute in Stockholm. This is Dr. Brian Leutzen. He is a clinical psychologist and a clinical researcher at the Department of Clinical Neuroscience at, as I mentioned, the Karolinska Institute in Stockholm, Sweden. You can read more about Brian and his work uh, by clicking on his name in this week's episode, and you can we'll get to his email address if you want to write to him and ask him about his studies or his work. Welcome, Brian. Thank you, Joanne. Brian, you're in Stockholm right now. Yes, I am. Was it the, was the Nobel uh, party and prize winning yesterday there in Stockholm? Yes. Well, it was like uh, a couple of days ago, but I wasn't invited, though. <laughs> you should have, I think. I think that the, uh, the work that you have done with IBS, I, I think is, uh, you know, I wonder why, why there's so little interest in this, because it's such an enormous problem and affects so many people. It really does. Why do you think there's so little interest in there among politicians and people giving money? I think that IBS has for a long time been considered to be an incurable uh, disorder um, because it's, um, as you said, it's a functional disorder. So there are no biomarkers that can be used to identify it. You, you just have to look at what symptoms the patient presents with. Mm -hmm. And perhaps this, all despite tons of research during the last 
30 or 40 years into this disease, they still haven't found any organic explanation for it. And perhaps that just makes it less sexy uh, within the medical field. Yeah. Yeah. About the sexiness, I'm interested. I think it's, it seems to me like um, when you talk about heart transplants or cancer or other things that seem to be really uh, people are afraid of, that seems to have a much higher value. But um, things that, you know, being able to go to the bathroom and defecate seems, um, although it's actually life threatening if it doesn't work. And it's uh, certainly something that we're you know, it's, it's a much bigger problem. It, it seems un, it's hard to understand why there's so little interest among among the medical researchers. Yeah, and I think that it's just because they haven't had the tool to to address it. If if no matter how much research you do, you're still not able to identify any causes or treatments for the for the disorder. I guess that they just lose interest in it and become more interested in looking at. Disorders that are more easy to understand, like inflammatory bowel disease or like Crohn's uh, disease or ulcerative colitis. Mm. Um, it's just much more interest in those um, disorders of the gut than irritable bowel syndromes and syndrome and functional dyspepsia and similar disorders. So, Brian, what, what got you interested in this? Actually, um, it was not a particular interest of mine. When I graduated from the psychology program, I just, my, my first job as a psychologist, um, it inclu included the, the, um, the development of a um, cognitive behavioral treatment for IBS. Mm -hmm. And since my background was in ACT, I sort of applied a ACT uh, perspective on IBS and um, together with exposure uh, we we developed a treatment protocol, and I, from the beginning, I wasn't that really very much into IBS. But as I learned that that we could really get great results with applying uh, basic behavioral principles on the the disorder, um, I got more and more excited, and it mm -hmm. became my my research project. So so how if if we start with um, you know trying to conceptualize or understanding what IBS is, what what, how would you conceptualize it? What, what is it? What kind of a disorder is it? So it's important to remember that IBS is very diverse. Um, different patients who have the same diagnosis of IBS can present with very different problems. They have different symptoms, but they also have, the symptoms also have very different impact in their lives. Uh, some patients are well-functioning. Uh, they have families and jobs and are able to participate pretty well in life while other patients are completely um, handicapped by their symptoms. Um, and you could say, you know, all symptoms are, are concentrated to the, to the stomach and the bowels. And you could say that the most common, it's like three or four very common symptoms. It's abdominal pain. Um, you have recurring uh, episodes of constipation, recurring episodes of, of diarrhea or sudden urgency to run to the bathroom. Mm -hmm. You also have problems with bloating and, and maybe nausea and uh, connection with that. Mm -hmm. So these are like four, four different symptom types, mm -hmm. um, which and any patient can have a combination of these or just one of them. Mm -hmm. And how would you explain, I mean, if since there is no st structural um, 
problems. How do you explain it from an act perspective? Why do these symptoms develop? I think it's um, perhaps it's difficult from a psychological perspective to to un- explain why the symptoms develop. You know what what gets them started. Mm-hmm. Some patients have had you know as for as long as they can remember they've had problems with pain or or you know they've only gone to the bathroom like uh, every three days or something like that. Mm-hmm. Whilst other patients develop this in adolescence or in early adulthood, uh, mm-hmm. and maybe it's been connected with having a, a stomach flu mm-hmm. um, or a very stressful period in their life, um, you know, relationship ending or um, job crisis or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. So it's very different backgrounds that these, these patients have. But what I would say is that what they all have in similar is that when I meet them, they've spent anything from the last um, four or anything from the last uh, two years up until the last 25 years being very preoccupied with the symptoms that they have. You know, what I think, Brian, when I was working with this, it's um, uh, a problem was that in the schools, a lot of kids, even from a daycare, um, a lot of uh, children don't like this, um, say, collective sitting on the potty. And some like to be private. Some don't want to be exposed. And even in school, a lot of kids don't want to use the bathroom. Uh, they'd rather go home so they would hold themselves and wait, yes. wait until they get home. And in, in our research, we looked at is, you know, if you don't use it, you lose it. If if you don't answer the signals that you need to go to the bathroom, which you have maybe about 10 minutes from you, where you have the first signal from the internal swinter, mm-hmm. uh, that pressure feeling, if you don't answer it, then the reflex, they lose the, the reflex. Uh, that it, they don't feel it anymore when they have, they're consistently holding themselves. Yes, so that could be one explanation, but I also think it's um, important to remember that for many of these kids, I think there's always also the possibility of a, you know, there's a context of, you know, making a very big deal out of uh, going to the bathroom. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, Perhaps yeah. the, the parents are really like, oh, shit, you know, my daughter hasn't been to the bathroom for two days. There's something wrong. Yeah. And they will be like really like surveying the the. Uh-huh. The, the child or asking them if they've been to the bathroom when they were in school. Yeah. And that would create a lot of stress around the, the toilet visits. And yeah. if, if you're in a stressed state, you know, it can actually be very difficult to defecate. Yeah, exactly. That's what we were looking at when we looked at the, uh, the, the actually looking at on a detail level with the EMG. We looked at that if you are stressed, if your some sympathetic activities increase, it's almost impossible. Yeah. Uh, because so, you're actually tensing the the mus- uh, muscles. Exactly. So that's sort of like one thing that we've identified is that for for the patients who have constipation or also perhaps have pain and think that the pain will will decrease if they're able to go to the bathroom going to the bathroom is actually something that's pretty um they have a lot invested in their bathroom visits (laughs) 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 you know if if they're not able to go to the bathroom that could you know be a potential catastrophe for them because they have to leave the apartment after that and they will just be like um thinking that you know if i'm not able to go to go to the bathroom 
now the the rest of the day will be a catastrophe. And then, of course, it's very difficult to actually um, to be successful in there. Mm-hmm. Mm. So it becomes a vicious circle. It it does become a vicious cycle. Yeah. So how does uh, uh, ACT approach this in general? So um, what we do is we we sort of we, we begin with with um, helping the the patient to see that um, although IBS is you know it may very well be that their IBS has an organic cause that has not yet been discovered, mm-hmm. um, or there may also be different organic causes for different patients. But what we begin with is to help the patient see that what they're doing is actually contributing to worsening or even or maintaining the symptoms that mm-hmm. that they have. Mm-hmm. Um, so we sort of look like at work with two processes. Um, one is that fear of, of having symptoms um, actually increases the risk of, of having symptoms. And you know, as as with panic disorder, if you're ha- afraid of having panic attacks, then the very sm- the smallest sign of of, of uh, panic attack symptoms could also actually cause a panic attack because of the vicious cycle between. If I feel that I'm perhaps I have to go to the bathroom, then I will get anxious, and then that will actually turn into actual uh, urgency. Then I have to ra- run to the bathroom. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So so just the fear of having symptoms um, it's actually a contributing factor to to uh, um, to to getting more symptoms mm-hmm. but it's also the process of um, sort of like um, you know it, at any given time you're probably able to to go to the bathroom and and pee some or or poo some. It's you know we always have something, little stuff stuff mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what these these patients have done have done is that they've really lowered the threshold, which means that they will sense any um, um, amount of stool that is present in their in, in the end of their of the bowel. Um, and they're constantly reacting to these smallest signals that are really just um, that they shouldn't be acting on, but they're all they're they tend to you know for instance if if I'm leaving my apartment and I'm afraid that if I you know perhaps I will get pain when I'm going to work, um, so I think that it, it would be best to to um, go to the bathroom if if I'm able to. So when I leave the apartment, I sort of like, um, um, what would you say? I, I, I try to detect if, if there's a possibility of, of going to the bathroom. Mm-hmm. And if I sense, you know, just the smallest signal, I will go to the bathroom. And what I'm doing is actually, what well, I'm actually lowering my threshold of detecting um, symptoms. Okay, but so when you say lowering the threshold, um, so you mean that um, the more we attend to these signals and and answer them, that actually we get a a much, uh, if you could say lower or higher, but more, we become very very sensitive to, which are much more sensitive than normal. Yes, exactly. And I think it's also important to sort of like separate the attention part and the 
the answering part because mm-hmm. I, it's it's um, you know when when they leave the apartment it's very difficult not to sense you know not to attend to the symptoms because they're so used to it and I I would say that this that is something that's from an act perspective is essentially out of your control mm-hmm. if you're very used to 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 um, attending to, to bodily symptoms whenever you're leaving the apartment, that will di- be difficult to just stop doing. Mm-hmm. Would that uh, be where acceptance comes in? Yes, exactly. So what you would do have to do is, instead of you know accepting the, the, the fact that whenever, for a, at least um, until sort of you change the context around leaving the, your, your, your apartment, um, for a while, you will be constantly reminded of different bodily uh, symptoms. But what you have to do is change the way you react to these um, signals that you get. Mm-hmm. Okay, so so that would be one big part that you find an acceptance for the signals, but how you act on it, you could actually control. Exactly. Okay. So what what other act processes do you see here? So we also um, work with the fact that, you know, these patients have let their symptoms control their life. Mm -hmm. Um, So perhaps they're able to function well during the workday, but they've been so... um, spend so much energy on controlling their their symptoms that when they get home they're all you know they're very tired because they they're exhausted from from um uh, trying to control their their body and also suppress anxious thoughts and, and pain mm-hmm. so then when they get home they're just beat and, and just you know spend the night doing nothing or, but it, it isn't so strange that somebody would do that i mean if you think about kids if if you smell you know if you've if you can kind of smell poop on somebody, it's it's a pretty stigmatizing thing. So it's not so strange that people would be a little afraid of that happening. Yes, of course. And um, so the fear of having an accident is um, maybe not as common in IBS as you would think. Many of these patients are, of course, very healthcare-seeking because it's a you know it's a social catastrophe mm-hmm. to, to mm-hmm. have an accident. Mm-hmm. Um, but we find it's like perhaps a fourth of the patients that we meet that actually struggle with the fear of having an accident. Mm-hmm. And we also have the patients who struggle with constipation or bloating or pain. Mm-hmm. Um, so what we found with, with specifically um, patients who struggle with diarrhea um, is that we work pretty behaviorally with them to to help them to to learn that they're for most of the patients they're actually able to control their their bowel better than they think mm-hmm. so we help them by um sca- um um from the first signal of urgency that they get they often run directly to the bathroom. And when they get into the bathroom, um, their colon is spastic and, you know, mm-hmm. they, they they have a real diarrhea attack and they're convinced that, uh, oh, I, I came in at the last second. Yeah. But if they would have actually stayed out of the toilet for um, a minute or so, they would find that they're actually able to, to control the bowel better mm-hmm. than they think. 
Mm-hmm. So this is the case for most patients. Then we have some patients who actually have recurring um, accidents. Mm-hmm. Um, and there we have to work a bit more with ex- with acceptance and, and, you know, if what is the trade-off? Are you prepared to, to run the risk of having an accident in some situations in um, if you're actually able to live a better life? But I, I would say that's a very small small proportion of the IBS patients that actually have these mm-hmm. recurring accidents that are, and their bowel is out of control. Brian, what uh, what about the thoughts? You mentioned that um, you know, they get very worried. And um, how, how do you treat their yeah. ca- catastrophic thoughts? So um, we have a very um, accepting approach. We, we, we help we help try to, to help the patients to develop an accepting stance towards thoughts um, because If you're sort of like worried that this weekend, maybe you've planned that you will meet with a friend, uh, um, go for dinner uh, on on Saturday, and you're really worrying about that during the whole week on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, you're just thinking about, you know, that it'll be a catastrophe, I will have a lot of pain, I won't be able to enjoy myself. So they're really like um, uh, not in the moment. But they're just thinking about Saturday night, Saturday night, and what a catastrophe that will be. And we find that it's not um, just trying to think that you know, no, it won't be a problem. It will, it will be a perfect night. Those types of um, thoughts are not really helpful. Mm. So what we have done is that we help the patient to just realize that if I'm if there is something that I really uh, am really afraid will will happen, and if that is a big catastrophe for me, if that would happen, for instance, having a lot of pain during a dinner with your best friend, you won't be able to not worry about that. Mm-hmm. And instead, we encourage the patient to observe the process of worry, to sort of like think that this is, you know, I've, I've decided to go out with a friend on, on Saturday and with that comes a lot of worry and, and apprehension. Um, but if I don't engage in those thoughts, if I don't let them control me, if I live my life as I would have um, up until Saturday mm-hmm. and just keep a mindful stance towards these thoughts, um, then they won't control me into like canceling or engaging in a lot of safety behaviors before the dinner. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. That sounds good. Brian, we've come to the end of the program. All right. Um, I'm sure there are a lot of people, a lot of our listeners who are, uh, who are experiencing themselves IBS or have friends or family who do what, advice could you give us about that? I think it's important to um, review, you know, how has IBS affected your life? How has it affected your uh, family life, your your uh, relationship with your, with your spouse or your children? How is it affecting your work life? And would you be willing to do 
things that make these relationships or your work situations more valuable, even though it would mean that you would probably, at least in the short term, experience more symptoms or the risk of, of, of having symptoms in the wrong situation. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. So to summarize you, um, so if you can accept, um, the different signals that you have just like like urges and and then choose uh, to act in ways that uh, mean something to you Could, would you say the results are that of your research have, have you been able to actually to do, do the urges um reduce i we've seen a very clear uh effect on ibs symptoms so what we know is that if you're willing to actually engage in different situations that you know or you're pretty sure will cause symptoms, mm -hmm. over time, um, the symptoms will reduce in these situations. And those are symptoms both of pain and urges? And pain of urges. You also, you will um, uh, be, your constipation will reduce. You will be able to go to the bathroom and actually want to go to the bathroom. Mm -hmm. Your bloating will decrease. But it's... It's, you know, it's like climbing a hill. You have to be prepared for short-term short increase in symptoms um, to actually learn that you're able to function with symptoms. Okay, so prepare for a little uh, increase in symptoms before it gets better. Thank you so much for being on our program today, Brian. Thank you, Joanne. You've been listening to our expert on IBS, Dr. Brian Liotzen. Uh, who is a licensed psychologist and clinical researcher at the Department of Clinical Neuroscience at the Karolinska Institute in Sweden. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for joining us today. For more information about Joanne and her work, please see her website at joannedahl.com or click on the host website icon in front of you on the webtalkradio.net page. Joanne's books are available through Amazon.com, including her two latest, The Diet Trap, Feed Your Psychological Needs, and End the Weight Loss Struggle Using Acceptance and Commitment Therapy, and ACT and RFT in Relationships, Helping Clients Deepen Intimacy and Maintain Healthy Commitments Using Acceptance and Commitment Therapy and Rational Frame Theory. Amazon also carries her books on chronic pain and other topics. We hope you'll join us again soon for another episode of ACT. Taking Hurt to Hope.